Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Solving the Puzzle with Dr. Datis Karazian, informing you about evidence-based strategies for autoimmune disease, brain health issues, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, gut health problems, and many other chronic health conditions. Solving the Puzzle is based on Dr. Karazian's more than 20 years of experience working with patients throughout the U.S. and Europe. His exhaustive review of scientific research, his own published peer review research, and clinical models he has innovated through trial and error in working with thousands of complex patient cases. In Solving the Puzzle, Dr. Karazian discusses the impact of diet, nutrition, lifestyle, mental and emotional states, and nutraceuticals in managing chronic health conditions, teaching you about strategies hard-won through decades of clinical practice and research. Dr. Karazian's goal is to inform you about effective models for so-called mystery symptoms and conditions so you can regain control of your health and your life. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at drknews.com. Hi, everyone. Today we're going to talk about PANDAS and PANS. This topic was picked because um, people have requested it. Uh, and if you do have some recommendations for future talks, please let us know. Let's kind of review some of the key concepts today, and I'll talk to you about mechanisms of action and the clinical mechanisms and the research behind it and then the clinical strategies that are involved with it, and um, and then talk about some kind of treat, treatment suggestions that may be somewhat helpful, but just go over the facts and mechanisms that are related to improving outcomes and so forth. So pediatric uh, uh, PAT PANDAS is really short for pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with streptococcal infection. And, and this was initially an observation that was made when various uh, children would, would get a streptococcus infection like strep throat or strep pneumonia and then after that have an onset of acute neurological symptoms. And uh, later on, it was discovered that it wasn't just streptococcus, and the term uh, was used was PANS, Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Symptom. And most of the patients that end up suffering from PANDAS or PANS end up with usually um, what are called motor movement disorders. We'll talk about that a little bit, and also things like OCD and anxiety and, and behaviors like that and reactions like that. So the typical, um, and by the way, if you're a parent and if you have children, uh, especially in the pediatric, pediatric age group, this is something you should be aware of and uh, know that these, that these mechanisms are very prevalent. And the rates of PANDAS and PANS totally uh, overwhelm the rates of autism, so it's much, much more common, and it typically goes overlooked. So the basic clinical presentation is that you have a child that has... Um, an infection. Let's say they have a, a streptococcus infection of some kind. Maybe it's upper respiratory. Uh, maybe it's a strep throat. And then all of a sudden, anywhere from an acute, immediate onset of symptoms while they're having the infection, or to even sometimes up to four months afterwards, they start to develop um, neurological symptoms like OCD, anxiety, um, tics, uh, choriform movements, um, sensory sensitivities, and this has never happened before. And then they have this new new set of symptoms and um, clinical expressions that have never happened prior to the infection. So there's that clear timeline of no neurological symptoms, infection, and then somewhere between right during the infection or up to four months afterwards, these symptoms start to develop. And um, it is probably one of the major causes for a lot of children that are suffering from different types of movement disorders and so forth. So what, what's happening? So what's the mechanism of action? Well, the mechanism of action that is understood right now in the literature is, is a mechanism called molecular mimicry, also known as cross-reactivity. So let's talk about the classical PANDAS form first. And with classical PANDAS, uh, you have the key antigen that trigger the infection is streptococcal infection. So someone gets a strep infection. Now, what's happening is that the streptococcus uh, infection is leading to the development of antibodies. Well, those antibodies that are produced against streptococcus have 
um, the ability to bind to areas of the brain called the basic anglia, and specifically to what are called dopamine receptors, D1 and D2 dopamine receptors in the basic anglia. And those antibody attachments to this area of the brain then lead to an immune response against that area of the brain, and there's an immunological injury to the basal ganglia. So that's the main mechanism of, of the classical PANDAS. A streptococcal infection takes place, antibodies are formed, the protein structure of the streptococcus bacteria is very similar in its amino acid sequence homology to the proteins, D1, D2 uh, proteins, in the area of the brain, the basic ganglia. So when antibodies are formed to help deal with the infection, those antibodies can then also attach to uh, different target proteins in the brain and cause an immunological response against them. That's the, that's the concept of cross-reactivity or molecular mimicry. And it's found with autoimmune diseases, and it's found with uh, PANDAS. Now, one of the key things is um, that it doesn't have to be streptococcus. Different types of pathogens have the ability to induce cross-reactivity and molecular mimicry and create these inflammatory or autoimmune cross-reactive reactions in the brain. So it doesn't have to be streptococcus, but that was really the classical form. Now, why do some children get an infection and get PANDAS and, and PANS, and why do some children do not? Well, obviously, it's not the infection itself that causes this. There has to be the right um, environment for this immunological response to take place. So, for example, one of the key ones is, there ha the, is permeability of the blood-brain barrier. For example, uh, streptococcus is too large. Its molecular weight is too large to cross a healthy blood-brain barrier. So one of, the re one of the mechanisms that is reported in the literature that may play a role in why some children develop um, PANDAS is because they have blood-brain barrier permeability. And, you know, we, the slang term for this is leaky, leaky brain. Um, just like uh, people have intestinal barrier permeability called leaky gut, the same thing can happen with the blood-brain barrier. And we also know that there are some strong relationships between leaky gut and leaky brain. Um, we published a study in the International Molecular Science where we looked at patients that had uh, inflammatory bowel diseases and found that they had significant uh, correlation and risk for having blood-brain barrier permeability by looking at different protein markers. So uh, other other researchers have found similar things. But we know that, you know, one of the reasons is if someone has, for example, a child has intestinal permeability, maybe from being sensitive to food proteins, uh, common ones are gluten, dairy, eggs, soy. Um, they have recently taken antibiotics. Um, they maybe have had even intestinal infection. Something breaks down their barriers, and specifically the blood-brain barrier. And also, uh, Having reduced antioxidant reserves, getting exposed to free radicals can break down the barriers, whether it's the gut barrier, the lung barrier, or the blood-brain barrier. Um, depletion of glutathione like, uh, has been shown to break down, to lead to these barriers breaking down. Glutathione comes from sulfur, sulfur amino acid foods. So you take it like the average, you know, kid that is only eating mac and cheese every day and doesn't eat any healthy food, doesn't have any sulfur in their diet, doesn't have any vegetables in their diet, then those things can all lead to, uh, you know, reduced glutathione, increased inflammation, barrier issues. So that may be one of the mechanisms that is increasing the risk for some children to develop PANDAS. Now, it's not just barrier compromise. Um, in order for cross-reactivity to happen, the other thing that we know about in the literature is that there has to be some loss of immune tolerance. And immune tolerance is 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 a term that's used to, to, to explain how the nervous system has an appropriate response to um, cell tissue or not. And there's lots of different cells and mechanisms involved with this. There are cells called regulatory T cells. They can be dysfunctional. Um, there can be abnormal dendritic cells in the brain. The microglia can be uh, um, overactive. Um, so it seems to be that um, it's not just the infection that causes this, because most kids that have an infection or, or streptococcus are not going to end up with pandas or pans. So it's the infection combined with some degree of uh, blood-brain barrier permeability and some degree of immune tolerance loss that then sets up the stage for this cross-reactivity to happen. And when this cross-reactivity happens, um, these antibodies that are formed against the pathogen 
then also cause an immunological response in the brain. And for the most part, there's injury to the brain. So these children unfortunately end up with um, immune-mediated immune injury to the brain. And then they can develop a whole host of symptoms. So the most common symptoms you'll see with, with kids that have PANDAS is OCD. Some of them have an inability to control their emotions, so they just start laughing all the time or crying all the time. They have a really hard time gating their emotional response. They may have uh, a, a very um, exaggerated fears uh, for things like the door not being locked. Um, they can have hallucinations. There's even some kids with pandas that jump out of cars that are moving. Um, they can mutilate themselves. Um, they can be very, very sensitive to light or sound. They can have rituals associated with OCD, with having to click something on seven times or have to wash their hands 20 times a day. Um, those are all the typical symptoms you see with, with, with kids that are suffering from pandas or pans. They also end up uh, having um, things like Tourette's syndrome, um, where they have these motor reactions or verbal responses. Tourette's syndrome isn't just saying profound words. Sometimes there are the profound words involved, but there is a motor Tourette's syndrome and sensory and a mixed, and uh, and uh, most will have a mixed. And uh, uh, with the Tourette's syndrome, you get a spontaneous kind of reaction. It could be motor, like you're jumping around, or it could be a verbal where you just say something. Um, another common symptom is tics. Tics are... And is defined as a movement disorder where a kid may have an unbelievable urge to, for example, um, rub their eyes or blink or have to <clears throat> clear their throat. Actually, clearing the throat is one of the most common tics. And they just feel this urge to have to do it, have to do it, have to do it, and they can suppress it. And then at some point, the urge gets too much and they have to, for example, <clears throat> clear their throat. So those are tics. Um, some kids get what's called chore uh, chorea or choreiform activity, which is like a non-predictable type of movement, almost like they're dancing. Chorea uh, means dance in Latin. So they get these movement disorders of that type um, that are associated with it. So why does all this happen? Well, let me try to explain this to you um, and kind of explain why these symptoms take place and so forth. So if you remember, um, the mechanism behind this is that there's an immunological response, probably from cross-reactivity, that destroys an area of the brain called the basic ganglia. So the question to ask is, what does the basic ganglia do? And uh, the basic ganglia has uh, lots of different functions, but one of the essential functions of the basic ganglia is to shut down and to dampen input coming into an area of the brain called the thalamus. Right. So the thalamus is an area of the brain called the relay center. And every input that goes to the brain will go through the, through the thalamus with the exception of smell. Olfactory pathways, smell pathways do not have to go through the, do not go through the thalamic projections, but everything else. So sensory perception, um, the way you can feel hot, cold sensation, proprioception, where your brain figures out where your muscles are in space, um, where you can perceive things like vibration, uh, hearing sound, uh, visual pathways, where you're looking at which colors come in, um, even cognitive thoughts that reverberate through your brain to different pathways, they're all going through these thalamic projections. So... Your thalamus is then relaying this, these inputs coming in from all the receptors in your brain to the different regions of the brain that are involved. But it's a lot of input. Uh, and one of the ways the brain controls and regulates its function is the basal ganglia. So the thalamus is right in the middle of the brain, and then the basal ganglia is right around it. And the basal ganglia gates or inhibits these inputs so there is not an exaggerated response. So it kind of calms things down. It shuts down the thalamus so there isn't these exaggerated responses. And there's three different loops in the basic ganglia. One is called the sensory loop, one's called the motor loop, and one's called the limbic or emotional loop. And the sensory loop processes information to areas of the brain called the parietal lobe where we perceive sensation. Um, the motor loop is, is involved with muscle function and coordinates with areas of the brain that are involved with muscle movements. And then the emotional loop uh, relays information to an area of your brain called the limbic system where we have emotional thoughts. So the basic ganglia is dampening input to the thalamus to control these different loops. And what you see is when the basic ganglia is injured is it can't gate or calm down these loops so you can have different types of expressions. And based on where the injury is in the basic ganglia, you can have different symptoms. So you can have a thousand different children suffering from 
pandas or pans, and they all have different symptoms, but they're all basic ganglionic symptoms. So you can have one child, for example, that has injury to their sensory loop of their basic ganglia from the infection, and then they get they're, they may be extremely sensitive to touch, or the body may hurt. They, their body hurts all the time, and they have to get distracted and focus on something for their body to not hurt. Maybe a video game, or, or, or thinking, or calculating, or counting backwards, or whatever they need to do. But they may have this exaggerated sensory perception. Um, it could be burning, it could be pain, it could just be numbness, um, but that's all part of the sensory loop being dysfunctional. It could also be sensitivity to sensory input coming in from visual pathways, so they get they really can't handle any um, bright areas, and they have to wear sunglasses. They prefer everything lights to be turned down. They could have um, part of the sensory loop involved with their hearing pathways, where they're extremely, extremely sensitive to sound and uh, really cannot tolerate high-pitched sounds or even low-pitched. It, it can vary on the pitch, depending on, again, which part of the brain is injured. Um, so you see all these different types of sensory sensitivities when the basic ganglionic sensory loop is involved. Now, if the sense that the basic ganglionic motor loop is involved, that's where you can see things like um, ticks, where there's blinking <coughs> or clearing their throat or having it rub their nose, uh, whatever they may be. This this urge to have to constantly repeat the activity of, of doing some kind of muscle coordinated activity, whether it's rubbing or blinking or clearing the throat, um, those are associated with um, the motor loop being injured. So you can have like children that have basic ganglia injury to this loop and they can, for example, blink their eyes <coughs> and do this and they can do that all day. <coughs> they can't help it and uh, they're unfortunately frustrated because they just have the surge happening and then it becomes very disruptive in classrooms and other settings and uh, they're really not in control of it. So this this is the motor loop. And then they have the emotional loop um, of the space of ganglia. And if that area is injured, then you can have significant uh, separation anxiety, for example. Kids with their parents, uh, if the limbic loop is, is uh, injured, they can completely overreact uh, with fear in situations that don't call for it. They can have severe panic for, for minor things um, that, you know, don't justify the degree of, of anxiety for it. So um, that's the emotion loop. So at the end of the day, when you look at um, what's happening with pandas and pans, is there's an infection. Antibodies are made against the infection. For some um, susceptible um, subgroups of children, uh, maybe blood-brain barrier permeability in combination with loss of tolerance, those antibodies attach to the basic ganglia. The basic ganglia has different regions, uh, and different loops that involve different brain functions, a sensory loop, a motor loop, and an emotional loop. And depending on which of those loops are injured, you can get different expressions of symptoms. So that's the basic mechanism of action, um, pathophysiology of PANS and PANDAS. So majority of children that suffer from um, Pans or pandas end up with both. Uh, end up with actually all three of these loops involved, where they have some emotional loop involvement. So they get extremely um, having extreme difficulty controlling their emotions, their fear, their anxiety. They get some OCD involving with emotional loop. They get some sensory loop involvement, where they are very sensitive to lighter sound, and then they um, end up with some motor loop involvements, where they have to clear the throat and so forth. And this is not psychological. This is physiological. This is not that they're trying to have these behaviors. It's the area of the brain that would dampen these movements is now injured. So that's the classical pattern of, of basic ganglia disease and injury. Okay. Now, um, how is this diagnosed? Well, the key the key marker for diagnosis is what's been referred to as the Cunningham panel, but for the most part, it's just antibodies to doping receptors. Um, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a Cunningham panel. That's just a name people have used with a lab that offers it. But for the most part, the path mechanism is there's antibodies to doping receptors, D1 receptors, D2 receptors. There's even literature showing that there's antibodies to GABA receptors. So um, the areas of the brain that, that are involved with dampening the, the space, the thalamic loop through the basic ganglia use dopamine and, and uh, uh, GABA, immunobutyric acid, GABA. 
So antibodies to those receptors is the pathophysiology of, of these mechanisms. So those can be measured in blood. So lab tests can be done to measure those markers in blood. And if there's a timeline with history and those, those lab markers high, then you can get diagnosed with something like PANS. Now, if someone has high um, streptococcal markers, like uh, uh, streptolysin antibodies, ASO markers is a marker they use for active and acute um, streptococcus infection. So if they see what are called ASO titers uh, elevated, and they see the antibodies for, let's say, dopamine 1, D1, D2 receptors with the onset of these acute neurological symptoms, then you have basically um, diagnosis of potential pandas and pants. Unfortunately, in the healthcare system, um, many doctors, physicians, and even neurologists um, are competent in identifying and diagnosing this, and they're still... Um, some unnecessary arguments whether the diagnosis and condition is real or not. I think that's kind of been it's been proven that it is very real at this at this time. But you know, like everything in healthcare, there's outdated physicians, there's healthcare pro providers and physicians that since they don't know about it, immediately downplay it because of their own incompetence. So the other key thing is that many kids unfortunately don't get diagnosed for the uh, for um, with the condition. They may. Families may be very, very frustrated, and this is why it's so important to have these support groups and these pandas and pans groups out there to to help parents uh, navigate their way through it. So, what do you do? Well, at some point, I think the key thing is to understand that there was injury that happened to the brain, and injury to the brain um, needs to be managed. And once the infection is gone, then you have to go in there and and really, really um, apply some applications to it. So, the first thing is. Um, in a clinical setting is have they started to develop other patterns of neurological autoimmunity? So the fact that they have D1 or D2, dopamine 1, dopamine 2 receptors, GAP receptor antibodies means that their immune system has started to attack um, their brain. Now, some of these um, or only these auto, autoimmune responses, by autoimmune meaning the immune system is attacking the body's own tissue, autoimmune, uh, to the body's own tissue. Some of these autoimmune reactions only take place during the active infection, and when the active infection is gone, these antibodies drop, and they're no longer involved. Um, other times, um, for other children, the antibodies persist even though the infection is no longer there. So that's another key point. Another key point is that for some, some patients that have PANDAS, um, once the infection is gone, they don't have this ongoing autoimmune response. The antibodies to the brain are gone. They had the infection. All they have is they're, at this point, some degree of brain injury. For other kids, the antibodies st still persist. And at this point, it doesn't have to be streptococcus or any other infection to promote their autoimmune response. Once there's antibodies made to that area of the brain, um, lack of sleep can flare up their autoimmunity. Anything else that flares their immune system can flare up their autoimmunity. And this is where we see a lot of difficulty with, with many parents because some of these parents, especially um, there is in outdated clinical information, a lot of these support groups where you have parents putting kids on antibiotics over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, assuming that there's some type of bacterial infection and this completely disrupts their microbiome, disrupts their immune system function, and they can't get out of it. So part of this is the fact that um, they don't understand that there's an, for some children that develop pandas or pans, they may not have the infection anymore. Uh, and, and the reason they're getting symptoms isn't because they have the infection. The reason they're getting symptoms that, that uh, start to be expressed more, whether it's OCD or anxiety, or movement disorders is because they've developed antibodies to the brain, and despite the infection being gone, those antibodies or that autoimmune response persists. So it can go either way. That's why it's important to test and see what's there. So in a let's say in a clinical setting, if you have a child that presents with pandas patterns or pans patterns, if uh, their antibodies are still elevated, like dopamine 1, dopamine 2, GABA receptor antibodies. If these antibodies are still elevated, most importantly D1, D2 antibodies, um, then 
and the infection is no longer there, and there's no patterns of infection with their white blood cell panel, and uh, there's there's no active infection patterns for specific pathogens, then you then you know that that child has now developed brain autoimmunity, and it doesn't need to be an infection to trigger the responses anymore. Okay. Uh, on the other hand, if you see a child has pandas symptoms that they've been dealing with for the uh, past, you know, in an acute phase, and you see the antibodies high, uh, and, the, and, and things like ASO, uh, like titers for streptococcus high, then you know that you, there's an acute infection that needs to be dealt with, and then you have to see if those antibodies persist uh, down the road. So unfortunately, with many children that end up with, um, with, this, uh, with this pattern, they, um, they end up uh, having this autoimmunity response that takes place, and parents and uh, practitioners keep trying to give them antibiotics and treating them, and this disrupts their immune tolerance more. So be aware of that. Also, um, for some of these kids, the injury to the brain is there, and things that cause their blood-brain barrier to break down, like a really unhealthy diet, a really inflammatory diet, will then continue to create that pattern. So I've had many PANDAS patients where um, there's no chance to get them out of it because uh, parents are not willing to make um, some changes. Um, for example, you have a kid that has blood-brain barrier permeability. We can measure that with antibodies. We can measure that with S100B antibodies. They have neurological antibodies. They have leaky gut, and they have these sensitivities to dairy and gluten. The parents just won't get the kid off dairy and gluten because they say the kid has the emotional rage when they don't get to eat him. They have to continue feeding them. They have constant inflammation. They're not doing anything for their autoimmunity. They keep doing rounds of antibiotics, and it's like there's no chance. Uh, you have to get the you have to calm down that vicious cycle. So that's one part of it, which I know is hard for some parents because their kids are suffering and and they have some serious rage issues, but. Some parents figure out how to do it, and some parents don't. The other key thing is that um, at some point, you have to rehabilitate the brain. So there isn't a magic supplement for pandas or pans, just like there isn't a magic supplement for any kind of brain injury. Uh, any strategies that are anti-inflammatory would be ideal for, for, for kids suffering from pandas and pans. Um, the most common anti-inflammatory diet that will be best for pandas and pans would be something like ketogenic diet. Ketones have an anti-inflammatory effect for brain. Um, diets that are very high in healthy fats, um, olive oil, avocado, um, fatty fishes, that would be very good as, as for dampening brain inflammation. Um, nutraceuticals like uh, turmeric, curcumin, uh, resveratrol, uh, green tea extract, have antioxidants, flavonoids, glutathione, those can be helpful to dampen some of the inflammation, but they're not gonna you know, fix the condition. They're just gonna have anti-inflammatory effect. And then um, the brain needs to be activated. So if the basic ganglia is injured, um, then just like a brain injury, you've got to get activation to the area that's injured so neurons that are healthy can go around the branch neurons and regain function. So many kids that actually have pandas uh, technically grow out of it, and what that really means is they have an injury, but as their brain continues to develop, they have plasticity or neurons that go over the injured areas and they get function that comes back. So when you look at injury to the basic anglia, there's two main pathways that are really important. One is called the frontal striatal uh, projections. Those are areas from the frontal lobe that go to the basic ganglia and activate it. And then there's pathways through the cerebellum um, called the cerebellum mesencephalic uh, thalmocortical striatal loop. It's a long neurological term, but it's a pathway where balance and coordination activate this basic ganglia loop. So basically movement, exercise, coordinated activities, dance, uh, martial arts, anything that causes focused, concentrated movements have phenomenal effects on uh, getting activation to the basic ganglia. Um, sensory, sensory games that um, really involve uh, focus, concentration uh, can be very helpful. Um, what are also things called go-no-go -no -go exercises can be very helpful. Go-no-go -no -go exercises like uh, uh, red light, green light, you know, uh, Simon Says. Those uh, activate the frontal lobe um, to really uh, decide to shut on, turn on, or turn off 
behavior, they can be very helpful for those activities. So at the end of the day, the big picture is, uh, let me recap and then we can take some questions. So when, when there's, a, there's a large group of children that are suffering from pandas and pans that are completely ignored in the healthcare system, and these children end up with things like Tourette syndrome tics, OCD, uh, um, sensory processing disorders, and uh, um, these children uh, usually have these symptoms develop after some type of infection. And the mechanism for that I've talked about is molecular mimicry. And the way that this is diagnosed is, is uh, a very clear timeline from infection to these new neurological symptoms, and then these. And there's also evidence of antibodies, uh, especially in the acute stage, to these uh, target proteins in the brain for the basic ganglia. Uh, most important ones are called D1, D2 receptors, and uh, once those are there, uh, for some children, once the infection is gone, those antibodies are no longer there. They don't have a persistent autoimmunity. They just have some brain injury that needs some that needs to be um, rehabilitated. For other children, the infection is gone, but those antibodies persist. We have no idea why that happens. Um, it has to do with their immune system function. But there are antibodies to this area of the brain persist, and it doesn't have to be an infection that triggers it. It could be diced diet, it could be lifestyle, it could be the blood-brain barrier breaking down. Anything can then trigger those ongoing uh, flare-ups where these D1, D2 receptors get activated more and their OCT gets worse and their movement disorder like tics or chorea gets worse. Um, and that's more of an autoimmune uh, mechanism. And at the end of the day, when we talk about uh, getting into an anti-inflammatory diet and lifestyle and then doing things to really activate the brain um, are really essential parts. Don't forget our website, drknews, drknews.com. And... Please follow us on Facebook. We do these talks regularly. You get to know what the topics are. And we have a newsletter at drknews.com, drknews.com. Okay. Okay. So, uh, hi. Hi. So, Susan Boyd, Susan's asking, is there a particular screening that would be good for these children once they reach their mid-20s to see if they are, are more or less out of the woods? So, the, the question, first of all, there isn't a, a specific lab test, let's say. You can still have antibodies persist, even into adulthood. There's some people that have a neurological autoimmune disease develop at some point in their life, and they have this ongoing autoimmunity for the rest of their life. So that's possible. So you can look at antibodies. The other key thing I, I want to mention is that when you look at brain development, there's um, gray matter and white matter. Gray matter are the neurons themselves. White matter is the myelin, the, the pathways that go to neurons. Um, and gray matter fully develops usually by age 9. White matter fully develops by age 21, 22, somewhere in the early 20s. And, and the ability to have recovery is really in that early ages. If they have any persistent symptoms past age 20, 21, it's very unlikely you're going to make significant change with them. That's why it's so important that once these children are young to immediately have an aggressive diet nutrition lifestyle approach and also to um, start activating their brain with lots of complex movement tasks like go no go red light let uh, green light red light uh, simon says making sure they have coordinated motor activities like dance or martial arts or anything they can do to really coordinate how their muscles turn on and off those are going to be critical absolutely staying at home and eating mac and cheese and potato chips and and just yelling at everyone and parents not doing anything is going to guarantee uh, permanency of the condition for many kids yeah. yep okay. okay next question sure um alex would array 14 from cyrus be helpful here array 14 um array 14 will screen for antibodies to various pathogen infections it can be helpful um to give a clue of what's going on um but you know some of those some of those pathogenic markers can be from exposure in the past. Uh, some antibodies persist in the body for up to one to two years. So it can be helpful to give you a clue what pathogens are there. Um, the most important marker would be looking at dopamine, dopamine 2 receptors. Um, Cunningham panel is the standard right now for, for evaluating pandas and pans. Okay. I think it's molecular labs that does that panel. Okay, Carla's asking, when is it time to drop seeking bugs and attacking pathogens and to go for the autoimmune treatments? 
Yeah, this is a good question. So when you stop chasing pathogens and go for the autoimmune treatment, right. uh, when they're no longer in acute phase, like if they don't have fever, they don't have temperature, and if uh, you don't see changes in their, if it's strep, then you can look at their ASO titers. The problem is some people keep going, well, these ASO titers are not outside the range, but they're suspicious to me. That's There's a point you gotta stop doing that. Um, but also the biggest clue is to really look at the white blood cell count. So if you look at a complete blood cell count, CBC, there's patterns for white blood cells, and then there's different types of white blood cells, neutrophils, eosinophils, basophils, um, and uh, if you see someone that has, uh, and by the way, lymphocytes, if you see someone that's got an active infection, you're going to see in many cases their white blood cells may be a little bit off, um, their lymphocytes will be off, and even more thorough than that, you should probably look at something called the T and B cell profile, and if the T and B cell profile uh, will look at patterns for an active infection by looking at what are called helper cells and suppressor cells, and when people have active infections, they have what's called a T-helper suppressor ratio that you can measure. And if that's abnormal, then you probably still suspect that there's an infection. If all those are normal and, they, and the child has persistent symptoms and antibodies are high, it's really time to focus on autoimmune management, improving their immune tolerance, and really starting to rehabilitate their brain, um, especially before you get to age 9 for gray matter and before you get to age, you know, early 20s for white matter. Merit. Can teeth grinding while awake be a motor symptom? Uh, teeth grinding while you're awake, bruxism? Um, not necessarily. It depends. It depends. It depends on if there's an urge or there's stress. Then that's a movement. If there's a, if there's an urge to do it, that's called a tick. If it's happening all the um, in a timeline fashion. It could be an expression of a of a of a motor response, but it's not the most common one. But it can occur. That's the thing. That's the interesting thing with infections in the brain. Depending on which pathway it hits, you can have a whole varied list of symptoms. And this is why one child is different than another. But if it was just uh, grinding in their teeth and no other symptoms like OCD or sensory uh, overload symptoms or severe anxiety, then I probably wouldn't think it would be a pattern associated with uh, pans or pandas. Meme is asking: Are heavy metals like mercury a cause, or is it just from infection? It's just from infection. Okay. Yeah, mercury's. So listen, mercury, lead, all these different chemicals—they're all bad, <laughs> but they don't cause molecular mimicry to a specific target area of the brain. That's the key difference. So listen, if you have mercury or lead in your brain, um, it's going to be all over your brain. It's not going to go to specifically one side of your brain, and it's not going to cause an acute series of symptoms for most people. Um, I mean, unless you get severe acute mercury poisoning and but then you can have a whole list of symptoms which is pretty rare when people like measure someone's heavy metals through a different test and the levels are high uh guess what that's how it is with every single person <laughs> that you measure it's pretty rare to see someone that doesn't have those levels of some degree of mercury or lead in their body just from the, the water we drink this the food we eat that has some degree of those things in there not to say that it's good but it's you can't say it's the cause so you know, in the in the typical world of alternative medicine, where um, people just continue to follow dogma, people that sometimes just blame everything on heavy metals, and and there's no exception with pans or pandas, but the actual mechanism of pans and pandas isn't directly related to heavy metals. It's related to molecular mimicry specific to uh, dopamine receptors um, in the basal ganglia. And that cannot happen with a chemical. It happens only with a very specific antibody for those target sites. Okay. Tazman, is there anything neurologists can do, or are we better off just using diet and supplements? Well, I mean, a neurologist could be a key, key person to help find the diagnosis, monitor examination findings. I and mean, if you have a neurologist trained in pandas and pans and can document what exam findings are abnormal and see if they're changing over time, that could be very helpful. If they can run the antibody test, that could be very helpful. So there's definitely a place for, for the diagnosis. Um, the application, however, there, however, there's no drug that you, you give these patients outside of the acute phase of infection. So if they don't have an acute infection and they're kind of in the point where they have a brain injury from the infection, um, that's where you're gonna get really maybe more with a person trained in brain rehabilitation, whether it's a physical therapist or um, anyone who knows how to rehabilitate the brain um, to some degree, or just getting the person really active and motivated with different types of exercises, and then dietitian lifestyle to, to improve brain function and control autoimmunity. 
with whatever kind of practitioner you find that is on your team would be ideal. Carla, why so much focus on strep when anti-DMAZ D is positive? My son has so many pathogens. Could this marker tell you something else? The focus on strep is because that's when it was first identified. Uh, it doesn't have to be strep. That's why there's PANS versus PANDAS now. And most cases are not strep. So they're, they're, the reason there's emphasis on strep is just because that was the first mechanism that was identified, and that's when they first saw that cross-reactivity response and reaction. So usually, you know, whatever's first gets the most attention mm-hmm. in that, and uh, but it doesn't have to be streptococcus. So uh, that's my guess why. Okay. Carla, once the blood-brain barrier is broken, mm-hmm. wouldn't superfood push the immune system too far, causing too much excitatory behavior? Superfood? That's what it says. Okay. Superfood. I don't know what superfood is, but um, once the blood brain barrier is permeable, and, and you, get, you know we have different degrees of permeability over our lung barrier, gut barrier, blood brain barrier at different times based on multiple variables, and the blood brain barrier gets permeable at times and it also heals pretty quickly. So we have different degrees of of, of, of permeability. Uh, if a if a pathogen does get through the the blood brain barrier, uh, and some viruses. Don't I can get through the intact and healthy blood-brain barrier, but things like streptococcus can't get through unless the blood-brain barrier is breached. But when a virus or pathogen gets into the brain, um, whether the blood-brain barrier is permeable or not, the blood-brain barrier does open at that point, um, and even more so even if it was permeable, uh, because at that point there are cells called astroglial cells, and these astroglial cells open up the blood-brain barrier, so T cells can come in and help deal with the infection. And then what T cells will do is they will actually attack tissues that have antibodies stuck to them, which would be the basic anglia. So superfoods, I'm not sure if they would have any real, I don't know what that means, but if you're referring to like superfoods, like high antioxidant foods, um, that uh, like acai or blueberries or you know various high flavonoid-based foods, those things have been shown to have anti-inflammatory effects, help heal the blood-brain barrier, help dampen inflammation, help support the immune system. So that would be ideal. Would you treat ticks the same way as you treat head banging? Yeah. So you know how you how you treat a movement disorder is gonna is gonna be based on the level of skill of whoever you're seeing. Um, if you if you work with a very talented person that can rehabilitate the brain, they can they can be very focused on and, and find things that change exam findings and, and implement those therapies. To be quite honest, most people can't, and there's a small amount of practitioners that know how to how to work with conditions. Um, I give an example: don't don't call our office. We don't have room for new patients right now. Uh, we just are overwhelmed. So um, anything you can do to activate movement is your way to go. And actually, there's nothing better than exercise and movement and cognitive tasks that are challenging for a child to rebuild the basal ganglia. So that would that would be your first go-to place more than anything else. So in one sense, you can do specific therapies different for different types of uh, conditions based on the child's physical examination findings, not so much related to what type of movement disorder they have. Um, but for the most part, get them to move, get them to coordinate activities, get them to be involved with uh, complex motor tasks. Um, and, and, and to be honest, most kids that have these patterns, they find it very difficult to do, so they hate it mm-hmm. and they don't want to do it. Um, so you have to kind of deal with that challenge. The biggest challenge is that when, when children have injury to the basic anglia, the things that will help them whether it's cleaning up their diet and the things that will help them, like doing complex motor movements, like playing a sport or doing dance, or the things they will fight fight to, to not do. They don't want to do it because it's hard for them to do it, and uh, um, that's the challenge parents have. Yeah. Because analysis, sometimes we'll, I've seen patients where I've done a very, very thorough neurological exam, identified exactly what key things will change their exam findings, but the kids won't do them. <laughs> And there's a big fight with parents and kid, uh, the parents trying to get the kids to do them, and the kids won't do them. And then basically all that entire workup and evaluation had no real effect because we just they just couldn't change that pattern. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's unfortunate. It's a struggle. It's it's a struggle. struggle. It's and also the key thing is dopamine receptors are involved with motivation. So the other key thing is when the dopamine receptor function goes down, they're not the the children obviously are not trying to be difficult. Dopamine is involved with motivation, drive, 
uh, focus initiation. So they actually have injury to the area of their brain. They need they need to activate to get out of it. And this is the difficulty of the of the condition itself because with low dopamine with low dopamine activity, it's very very hard to initiate to stay motivated and. Um, it's very difficult for parents to get kids to do this because of that pathophysiology. Okay, Nicole is asking, is there any overlap in PANDAS symptoms and ADHD symptoms? No, they're totally different. PANDAS and ADHD are different. PANDAS is uh, very specific to basic ganglionic symptoms, and ADHD is very specific to lack of uh, frontal cortex activity. However, I guess you can say there's a little, there is, there is some some types of slight overlap, which is that when ADHD, since they don't have focused attention and concentration, they can't suppress some of their activities and they become what's called hyperactive, but they're really not really hyperactive. They just don't have control of dampening their urges. That does involve the frontal lobe activating the basic ganglia, but, but the key thing with ADHD is that their frontal lobe associated with focus, concentration, and tension are impaired. So you can also children have both. It's not uncommon to have um, the autoimmune response also cause inflammation and cause injury to the frontal lobe. And now they have ADHD symptoms in combination with basic ganglionic symptoms. So the inflammatory response that's, that's, that can trigger an infection and lead to pans or pans can also um, lead to autoimmunity against just basic myelin or myelin basic protein. Then other areas in the brain besides the basic ganglia can also be involved. Okay. Um, Leanne. What about adult strep antibodies and ASO titers? What do you do about that? You know, it's interesting. Is we, you know, with with children, they have this vulnerability to this cross-reactive in the basic ganglia, um, and it doesn't seem to to be as much of a factor with adults. For some reason, with adults, when they get strep infection and uh, other types of pathogens, they're not as prone to cross-reactivity. The exception to that is adults that have immune dysregulation and already have some autoimmune disease. So um, remember that in order for this concept of molecular mimicry or cross-reactivity to happen, where antibodies formed against the pathogen um, can then attach to self-tissue proteins, you have to lose something called immune tolerance. And um, people that have autoimmune disease have lost their tolerance. So with adults, uh, you're really only worried about cross-reactivity typically with those that have lost their tolerance and your biggest clue that they already have an autoimmune disease like Hashimoto's or RA and so forth. We also have an online program on immune tolerance at Dr. K News where we teach people how to improve their diet, nutrition, and lifestyle and take different strategies to to improve their uh, uh, tolerance issues. Uh, If you're interested in that, you can check it out at Dr. K News. Okay. Um, can you explain IVIG, how IVIG works? I'm sorry with the initials. I don't yeah, know what that means. IV, immunoglobulin therapy, IVIG. Yeah. The, way that, the way this works is they do an IV with IgG antibodies, and the IgG antibodies compete with pathogenic antibodies. So they, the antibodies that would attack the basic ganglia uh, are no longer able to attach to the basic ganglia because the IgGs are competing with it, and then it decreases the, the autoimmune response against it. So IVIG therapy can be um, a very good strategy in acute states of infection. But here's the problem. Like, the infections happen, the brain is injured. A year down the road, someone's trying to do IVIG therapy. Uh, it really might have no effect at all. So it's best used during an acute infection stage. And I think, i got to say, that's, I think, the biggest issue with the PANS and PANDAS community not understanding. Once the infection happens and there's persistent antibodies, there's no more pathogen to go after. You have to treat other things. IVIG is only best when in the path, when the pathogen is involved. Okay. Um, a lot of people are asking about keto for kids. Um, one person is saying, since dairy is so inflammatory, would you recommend keto dairy-free? Yes. Also, is keto safe for kids as they're developing? That, that kind sure. of thing. Okay. Yeah, so, so uh, yes, you can do keto with kids. Definitely, dairy is inflammatory. In, in, in our talk, we always recommend doing ketogenic um, without dairy. So you want to use like vegan-type cheeses, like coconut, coconut-based cheeses, for example. Uh, and they're actually really good. <laughs> we don't eat cheese, so to we don't us, need they're dairy, really good. So. Yeah, <laughs> if you eat a lot of 
normal cheese, then you might not think it's so good. <laughs> but uh, um, you want to do ketogenic with a uh, dairy-free diet. And, and you want to do lots of vegetables. That's the key thing. You have to have lots of diverse vegetables um, to really support nutrients, um, health of the microbiome while, while, you're, while a person is doing a ketogenic diet. The biggest difficulty with, with kids is that there's no sugar because when you're on a ketogenic diet, you can't have sugar in sweets. So it's getting them out of that sugar, um, that uh, sweet tasting phase of it. But um, ketosis can be done with kids. It's not gonna, there's, here's the key thing. There's no nutrient deficiency in the ketogenic diet. If you're doing ketogenic diet with vegetables, uh, diverse list of vegetables, you're getting every single micronutrient and macronutrient. You're just having a diet that's that's decreasing insulin surges by having a higher percentage of calories coming from healthy fats. Now, if you do a ketogenic diet with um, bacon, butter, cheese, uh, <laughs> fried foods, um, that's not going to be beneficial. <laughs> right. Are you going to have a program on this? No. Okay. We're, we're not, I mean, program, what do we need? Maybe uh, like save okay. your brain. Or oh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, we haven't thought about that. We, uh, we, we are creating some programs for next year to help patients navigate their way through some conditions, like we did the Save Your Brain program, mm-hmm. um, which is it's just not really for pandas. It's for adults that are starting to notice some cognitive decline. That, that's an online program that you can check out at Dr. K News. Um, we have a, we're going to be finishing up a, a GI program to help people navigate their way through unhealthy GI symptoms. Um, but with the Krasian Institute, where I teach postgraduate education to healthcare professionals, next year we do have a course on childhood developmental disorders. And there is, we're going to be covering a section in PANDAS and PANS with the research with much more detail. But uh, that's as far as what's in the schedule books. Thank you for asking. Do you find that the same concept of autoimmunity in pandas and not treating the infection similar in limes? Meaning don't go after the pathogen, but the autoimmunity. Yes. You go after the pathogen, just not... Yeah, so Lyme, once it get past, gets past the acute phase and the injury's there and the tick is outsmarted, the immune system is always hiding and can always hide faster than it can uh, be eradicated, um, then you basically have to treat... Many patients that have Lyme end up with autoimmunity, so they have antibodies to the brain, they have antibodies to different target proteins, and with them, that's really um, implementing an autoimmune diet and lifestyle to decrease the expression of their disease, and they can function better when they implement those strategies. But uh, it's, it's, there's some overlap and similarities between that. Okay, Michael's asking, what are your thoughts on Macuna purine seed extract for dopamine? I guess yeah, purines is a natural form of some L-dopa. That, I mean, natural forms of dopamine that can be used. Um, it's not going to have much of an impact with uh, with pandas or pans. Um, and it doesn't have much of an impact with Parkinsonian disease. Uh, it does seem to won't only work best to help mood, a little bit of down, like if someone's a little blue and the dopamine level is a little bit low, purines can be very helpful. But at the end of the day, um, pandas and pans is all about autoimmunity management, inflammation, uh, and then brain rehabilitation. You won't get as much, you won't really get much clinical effect with using mechanopurines, which is a natural uh, dopamine compound. Okay, a lot of people are asking about your thoughts on the walls and the Bresden programs. Oh, uh, Terry Walls? Yeah, I think Terry Walls, and I'm pretty sure. Terry Walls is awesome, big fan. Love Terry, love Terry Walls. Everyone should check out her website. <laughs> uh, Dale Brennison, Dale Brennison yeah. awesome, fantastic researcher, uh, great stuff, big fan. <laughs> <laughs> and they're good people. Great people. I have a lot of respect for all their work, and uh, I love what they do. Big fan of both of them. Okay. Yay. Um, Tammy, what about restorative supplements like phos- phosphatidylcholine and phosphatidylserine? Yeah, so, you know, these are the different things. So when you look at how you can improve brain function, um, phosphatidylserine, phosphatidylcholine, uh, EPA, like fish oils, they can all be good sources of helping helping improve more healthy nutrients to the brain. But the condition isn't caused by a brain nutrient deficiency. The condition is caused by an immune attack against targeted proteins in the brain. Mm -hmm. So even though it can be useful um, to help support the brain from a nutrition point of view, you still need to do activities that get that basal ganglia to develop. Um, Because basically, it's just like someone has a brain injury. Um, They have to do rehabilitation to activate their brain so they can recover. So just like someone who has a brain injury can't walk, they're going to have to try to walk 
and do things to get those neurons to reconnect again. You can't just do it with phosphatidylcholine or phosphatidylserine. However, taking those things while you're doing therapy may not be such a bad idea because they do help support the nutritional status of the brain, which would be a beneficial thing as you're trying to improve its its uh, its connectivity and plasticity. One of the Tammies is saying, I hear parents say constantly that EMF causes an open blood-brain barrier, and they link EMF to this brain. Yes. Um, what are your What are your thoughts? Yeah, so there's some so there's some literature that EMF does disrupt brain activity, and uh, um, there even some early patterns that it can break down the blood-brain barrier. But uh, again to what degree and to what degree of sensitivity does a person have. So um, if you actually take someone's food content throughout the day and measure the amount of chemicals in it, even if it's organic, you're going to find, well, there's some chemicals in here. And you can say, well, that disrupts your brain. So you shouldn't be eating any food. <laughs> it's like, well, there's a point where our body has to have some resilience. So when the body's healthy, uh, it should have some resilience against inflammatory foods. It should have some resilience against infections. It should have some resilience against EMFs. But there are people that have injury to the brain, and they lose that resilience, and EMFs will absolutely flare them up. Um, and uh, they they need to follow the different strategies to reduce EMFs uh, in their home. There's uh, there's uh, blankets they can get over their bed, like drapes, so they get less EMF activity. They can put things on their computer. They can use different headsets for their phone. Um, but there's, there's, those strategies may have to be incorporated with them. And it's not uncommon for children that have had injury to the brain from PANDAS or PANS mechanisms to become extremely sensitive to EMF. But as their brain becomes healthier, then they have greater resiliency to that. And uh, um, that would be a good sign to see uh, mm-hmm. a child that actually is no longer sensitive to being around a computer or you know, in a, in, a, in a building with lots of EMS activity. Yeah. Yeah. Can strep antibodies and low platelets be related? Can strep antibodies and low platelets be related? Mm-hmm. Well, strep antibodies are just telling you that you have antibodies against a specific pathogen, and low platelets is... I mean, if low platelets are there and white blood cells and red blood cells are normal, and that's unique uh, to... It's not necessarily complete immune compromise or bone marrow issues, but one of the most common causes for people to have low platelets is actually just a vitamin vitamin K deficiency. So vitamin K is essential for, for producing platelets. So in vitamin, you know, like vitamin D has gotten a lot of attention in the past few years as, as finding that many people are really deficient in vitamin D. Uh, I think in the next five, 10 years, there's going to be an explosion of vitamin K being popular. <laughs> a lot of people actually have vitamin K deficiency. So it doesn't hurt to take some vitamin K and see if that improves platelets. And vitamin K is also really important for immune function as well. So that would be my initial thoughts with that question. Yeah. Okay. Um, Catherine, what causes white matter to degrade? To degrade. To degrade. So white matter uh, is the sheath around neurons, and white matter um, is basically very vulnerable and sensitive to any kind of inflammation. So when you look at cells and look at tissues, the amount of antioxidants you have against them protected against injury and damage. Well, white matter doesn't have antioxidants or things to protect it. So it's very, very vulnerable to um, in, infect, uh, to uh, any kind of infection, any kind of inflammatory response. It's very vulnerable to hypoxia, lack of oxygen going to the brain. It's very vulnerable to free radicals. And, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the findings that you see with MRI findings is just what are called white matter hyperintensities, which is white, white matter lesions. And they're so frequent now that the, you know, radiologists are classifying these as a normal variant of aging, <laughs> meaning uh, somehow it's okay to have injury to your white matter as you get older, and that's okay. I mean, uh, I don't think that's okay. I don't think you should have any <laughs> hyperintensities. And there's many papers that have been published. Uh, one of the papers that's been published is like white matter hyperintensities, not so benign in the literature, where they argue the fact that, yeah, you, sh- you know, these white matter injuries that are so common in MRIs, you know, aren't necessarily okay. <laughs> They're actually saying that there's an inflammatory response. So anything inflammatory can, can damage these white matter areas. Okay. Because you open the door for vitamin K. Okay. K1, K2, is vitamin K1 more important than K2? Does it matter? Uh, again, <laughs> this is a nutritional debate talk. Uh, uh, There's like six questions. 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't have I don't have a position on that. Okay. <laughs> I'm undecided. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. Um, so testing for gut, uh, Tammy, testing for gut permeability. Yes. Um, how, basically how to diagnose leaky blood brain BBB and okay. GI map, uh, zonulin. Yeah. So the way you check for, um, leaky gut is yeah. by, for me, I, I like to use a panel through Cyrex laboratory. It's called a ray number two. And they check for, uh, zonulin, including antibodies, actomycin antibodies, um, and those are the junction proteins of the gut. And if those are elevated, it lets you know that there is breakdown of the intestinal barrier. Cyrex Laboratories also has a panel called um, Array 20, and that checks for blood-brain barrier, pro- pro- blood brain barrier uh, permeability. Um, the classical tests that can be done by any conventional lab is S100B. S100B is found to be associated with uh, breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. However, there's other things that can raise S100B be, besides blood brain barrier permeability that that occur. For example, various benign tumors or malignant tumors can sometimes raise them. Um, but S100B is the, the typical model. I'm not a big fan of the vibrant zoomer test uh, because uh, they, they don't do the gold standard ELISA testing. They do microarray analysis, which is not the gold standard. And uh, I don't I don't like to use that test that some people use. Uh, I really think you should always use gold standard testing and never uh, secondary in a, uh, test. So I stick to Cyrex. Okay, um, Helen. If an adult has adult onset Tourette's, do the same protocols apply? Well, you know, in adults, the most common cause for basic ganglionic injury with Tourette's and these symptoms is actually a mini stroke. It's not actually from infection. So this is, this is really, really important. Um, there are path, there's blood vessels called a lenticulostriatal um, vascular system. And these are little blood vessels that go out throughout the basic ganglia and they're, they're just ready to burst when there's high blood pressure. So when someone has something like uh, acute onset OCD, acute onset restless leg syndrome, acute onset tics as an adult, I'm, I'm, it's rarely pandas or pans. It's most likely a silent stroke or a mini stroke um, that's causing that. And then they should definitely be scanned with an MRI and see if they have what's called microvascular disease. And they need to mm-hmm. check their blood pressure and make sure that's, that's, that's normal. But that's, so, it's, so acute basic anglionic symptoms in adults, you should be thinking stroke, mini stroke, um, macrovascular disease. Um, and then with kids, basic ganglionic symptoms, the most you should be thinking pandas pans. Well, thank you for the suggestion for doing a talk on pandas pans. Um, and uh, there's a few other suggestions we put on the list um, from people that have joined us. And we really appreciate you joining us. And we're always trying to accommodate um, topics that people are presenting. And uh, I hope you found something useful. And if you can share this information with any parents that are dealing with pandas and pens, that'd be really important for them. The key thing is to, to at some point quit chasing an infection and really go after improving brain function and improving um, uh, mechanisms, dealing with uh, dampening the autoimmune response and inflammation, and also realizing that part of the pathophysiology of the disease is that these doping receptors are dysfunctional. So it's really going to be hard to motivate and, and get kids suffering from this to change your diet and to do physical activity. But that, that's that's what you got to get. You got to figure out a way to do that. Okay, one more yep. thing. So people are saying they have your brain book. Does that help? And people are also saying, it's hard for me to get to the brain book. What do I do? Okay. The brain book that I wrote a book, a book called Why Isn't My Brain Working? <laughs> Auto- autobiography. It is not an autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's a book where I went into the literature of all well, the different ways you can support the brain. But it's really designed for adults. It's not really designed for pandas or pans. So, so that book won't be very useful. Um, and the online program we have called Save Your Brain actually came from readers of that book going, this thing is thick like a brick, and I don't, mm-hmm. and it seems good, but I don't know what the, how to implement it, and that's where we have, your, we have the online Save Your Brain program. Okay, well, thank you all for joining us, and you. Uh, hopefully you found something useful, and uh, we'll be back next week. Thank you. Thank you. You can find all of this information and more at drknews.com slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, readings, and links related to this episode. 
You can also find Dr. Karazian's blog at drknews.com. The best thing to do is sign up for his weekly newsletter, where he will update you on the latest research and clinical strategies related to chronic and autoimmune health conditions. On social, you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest with the username Datis Karazian. This is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they have, and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. To learn more about Dr. Karazian's disclosures and the companies he advises, please visit drknews.com forward slash about.